Good morning again. Uh, I want to ask you, how many of you can remember back to the 80s? One of the top, probably one of the highest. Yeah, you remember the 80s, Matt? That's our, that was our decade. Um, Matt and I are having a conversation here. But, the, um, you know, that I look back to the 80s, probably one of the movies that it had to be one of the highest grossing movies in the 80s. I'd have to go back and check that. But uh, remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Indiana Jones, the first, the first of the movies. And do you remember what it was they were looking for? Title kind of gives it away. The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and and remember the the theme of that story, the the point of that, um, why everyone was out to look for the Ark of the Covenant was they wanted to use it. The Nazis were looking to try to capture it because they saw it as a, a source of power. Again, this is a movie; it's fiction. It's but it's using something from the scriptures, uh, and and describing the ark, which is at the center of the story today. Do you remember, though, that the, the Nazis, their whole goal in getting it was to use it. They wanted to use it to gain power. Uh, and it didn't work out well for them. Do you remember the final scene? I've always thought I wanted to use that clip, and I thought if there are kids in the room, it really doesn't work when people's faces are mounting off of each other. But um, do you remember the, the scene, though? Um, Indiana Jones, while he d- does not come across as a very religious man, he knows enough to know this isn't something to mess with. And so when they're breaking open the ark, um, he tells the woman, woman at his side to don't look. And, and all of those that are, it goes from this joy of, this, this ecstatic joy of looking at the brightness and the light coming out to where literally uh, everyone in the room was destroyed. It, it gives us that picture of the ark of the covenant being something that isn't something you want to mess with. But the reality of the story in the scriptures is that the ark is something that is treated as holy because while God is established on his throne in heaven and and, and his full presence lives in heaven, there is a sense of God's presence that's represented in the ark. A A few weeks ago, we looked at the issue of crossing into the promised land. And remember the priest carried the ark to the edge of the Jordan and the Jordan stopped flowing. And the people were able to pass into Israel uh, in, on dry land. We, we've seen the ark as being a representation of, of, of something where God was present in a very manifest way. And, and, and God gave very specific instructions of how people were to handle the ark uh, at risk of life if they didn't. There's, there's a sense of holiness that comes with God's presence when, they, when we talk about the ark of the covenant and when we think about this story, though, today, is I, I just I kept thinking about the Indiana Jones and that scene. Because really, at the heart of the story today, we're mainly looking at 1 Samuel chapter 4. But we're going to then jump into some places in chapter 5, uh, going into the beginning of chapter 7. I promise we're not going to stay here all morning. Um, but what we see is, at the center of this story today that we're looking at is, Israel, rather than actually examining their relationship with God, tried to use God, tried to use the ark to find victory. Uh, And what we see after the ark is captured is that the Philistines do the same thing. They they try to set up the ark as as one of their idols, and they're going to use this thing as as what they see as a source of power that had given Israel victory. They're going to find a way to use it to find victory. And that does not work out well for them any 
better <laughs> than what we see in the in the movie Indiana Jones. So let's go ahead though as we dive into this. I just I want to ask you when we think I mean kind of a weird title. Think of it, focusing on the idea of the Ark being captured. What is what does that mean for me? That issue of control and trying to use God to an end is something that we all have to examine our own hearts and our own lives. We, we have to look and we have to ask ourselves, do we, do we seek to use God or do we seek to walk in relationship with him? Do, do we really seek to use him or are we surrendered in, in seeking to know and do his will? Are we trusting him? and Are we walking in obedience as we sang this morning in that old hymn? Only you can answer that today. But what we find in this account is that Israel failed to examine their hearts and their lives to really discern what the reason is for their initial defeat. And, and, and so they, instead of trying to mend their relationship with God, they sought to manipulate and control and to use the ark, in, in, in a sense, try to use God to fulfill their purposes. So we're going we're gonna to read through the entire chapter four and give some comment and then make some, and then briefly hit on the, the other chapters. Let's pick up in verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to the battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today? Before the Philistines, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of the enemies. Now, two comments here. The, this group of the Philistines is being introduced here, and this is, this is enemy number one for Israel, both in Samuel and in the book of Judges. And what, we, what most commentators say is that they are a group, they were considered sea people, that came from the area of Greece and, and came across the Mediterranean and, and had established uh, a presence in Canaan. And so the, they were a threat. They were a strong military group. And, and we see throughout Samuel and we see throughout the, judge, the book of Judges, we see constant battles between Israel and the Philistines. Um, what we also see, though, in this section is, is a key thing that the elders... Did you catch the fact they asked the right question? The elders ask, it says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The question wasn't, why did we lose? Why did the Philistines beat us? It was, why did the Lord defeat us today? They ask a good question, but instead of examining their hearts to see how they have sinned, they attempt to control the situation. And they go to get the Ark of the Covenant that it may... in their words, that it may come among us and save us. You know, there's the temptation for all of us, we tend to want to repeat when, when something has worked in the past, we tend to want to repeat that. And, and I think sometimes that happens even in, in our spiritual life and in the church. We tend to hearken back to something that worked in the past, and Israel had a lot of experience with the ark being front and center in, in great days of victory. And, and so they went and they, captured, they got the ark, they brought it out, and, and their intent was to send the ark so that they could find victory, but they failed to examine their hearts to see what was really going on. Verse 4 says, So the people sent to Shiloh, 
and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And if you were here last week or you listened last week, we know that uh, Hophni and Phinehas, their days are numbered. Remember the prophecy that we looked at last week in chapter 3 was that, that they would die on the same day. It says that they were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. In verse 5 it says, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came in, into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now, some of you, are any other college football fans here? Did you get to watch any of this week? Do you, or whatever, high school football. Do you remember, you remember you can have, you be at a game and there can be noise, but when the team runs on the field, there's usually some form of, of an explosion of, of noise and excitement. That, picture that is what's happening. Is, is Israel, they're, they're dressed for battle and the ark comes into their midst and, and they explode with excitement to the point that the Philistines hear it and say, well, what is going on? And, and what's amazing is the Philistines are aware of God's story of delivering Israel out of Egypt. And, and, and they're aware of God's glory. They may not know God in Yahweh personally, but they know his reputation. They know his fame. They know his power and his glory. The Philistines are aware of that, and, and they say, they, they reference the plagues that were brought upon e Egypt when God delivered the people of Israel. So instead, but the, what's interesting is the Philistines, they say, look, a God, a God is now in Israel's midst. They, they know that there's something serious, that the, the, the game has just stepped up to a new level. There's fear, but their response, the Philistines who are seen as warriors throughout both Samuel and Judge, the book of Judges, their response is, be men and fight. Verse 10. So, so the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Again, Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. Interesting, some commentators think that that could have been Saul, King Saul, who's referenced a few chapters later. Nothing that we can be sure of that other than we know Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. It says, a man of Benjamin came from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn, with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli, remember the priest whose sons have just been killed, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, uh, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? 
And then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. Eli trembled for the ark of God. Or, I mean, think, if, think about this. Pause for a second and think about what happens. This guy comes running in from the battle. He runs in from the battle, announcing the fact that Israel has lost. Phineas and Hophni are dead. In the worst of the news, the ark has been captured. The, what they thought was going to give them victory has been captured by the Philistines. And what's amazing to me is Eli didn't tremble for the fact that his sons died. Eli trembled for the ark of the Lord. He was concerned. His concern, he, he knew the prophecy uh, that his sons were going to die and that, that his household, the priestly line of his household was going to come to an end. But Eli's concern was for the ark because that represented that God was with them. It represented God's presence so that they could have victory. Picking up in verse 16, it says, And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. Is that how you want to be remembered? I mean, it's if, if your name is going to make it into the scriptures, it's not really how you want to be remembered, old and heavy. But the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. So what we see in Eli is Eli had not only functioned as the priest with his sons, he had functioned as the judge, which was temporary king, ruler in Israel. He hears the news, not necessarily about his sons dying, but he hears the news that the ark had been captured. He falls over and breaks his neck and dies. The story is an it's an interesting story and it gets more weird as we go on. So just keep keep hanging on. Verse 19 it says, Now his daughter in law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news of the Ark of God, that the Ark of God was captured, and that her father in law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. So she hears the news and she goes into labor. Verse 20, it says, And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So the wife of Phineas, she hears the news, she goes into labor, and literally this is a her scene of, of, of giving birth and dying in childbirth. Before she dies, she names her son Ichabod. Anyone here know an Ichabod? Yeah, a lot of people pick Bible names, they don't pick Ichabod, and there's a reason for that. Kabod, the kabod, is the word when we, throughout the Old Testament, when it's translated glory, the glory of God, the heaviness, the, the, the greatness of God, the greatness of God, his glory that the Philistines even knew about. 
because of his reputation and the victory that he had given his people. That's the glory of, of, of that is associated typically with God's presence. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah describes the throne room of God, and it, it says that the glory of God filled that room. It says the greatness of his presence, and it's his, his fame. His, it's we, a hard time really capturing the, what that word means. But the wife of Phineas, on her deathbed and giving birth to this child, she names the son Ichabod, which means where is the glory? Basically, is recognizing that the glory of God has departed. I've known people over the years that regretted their parents' choice of names for them. I, I, I think Ichabod would have had a hard time um, with this one. But I mean, basically, his name and his life became an object lesson for God's people, um, which seems a little harsh. But it, Anyone that would remember that day would remember, yeah, we remember Ichabod's birthday. That's the day the ark was captured. That's the day that his mother died. And the glory of the Lord passed from Israel. This chapter gives us a pretty odd story that it only gets more weird in the next chapter. But what we see in this, again, thinking back, thinking back to that scene from Indiana Jones, Israel, in a very real way, is attempting to use God to find victory. And, and they are much more warranted than what we see in Indiana Jones and, and the, the Nazis have, who have no relationship with God. But in this scene, we, we understand that if you look at the, what we've already read throughout the scriptures, is that, that remember the story of, of Achan? When there is sin in the camp, that it, that it caused defeat for God's people. And, and they had to get to the root of that issue and, and examine their hearts. And I, I want to pause for a second to say, Scripture, you got to look at Scripture as a whole, and we know that, that pain and suffering falls upon the righteous and the unrighteous. There are going to be days in our life, even if we're walking in right relationship with God, that we're going to experience pain and heartache. But what we see in this account and what we see in Israel's history is, is that Israel, for them to be victorious and, and, and conquering the land and, and fulfilling the promise that God had given them as a nation, they had to walk in obedience with God. And, and at the heart of this is, is what we see Israel doing is instead of examining their hearts, they instead try to use God. There's no, no attempt to examine their hearts or their community. And instead, they, they try to seek to use the ark to find victory without even going to God and seeking his direction of what to do. There's no sense of relationship. And in the translation I have, it says, it actually used the word it in referencing to the ark, that it would give us victory instead of God giving us victory. The psalmist in chapter 78, I don't know if you'll be able to read this. I tried to squeeze way too much on the next slide. Yeah, you will not be able to read that. Just listen. Um, For they provoked him. This is the psalmist's description of, of what happened and what we just read. It says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him, moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. 
the tent where he dwelt among mankind and delivered his power, the ark, he delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by sword. Their widows made no lamentation. Then the, but then the Lord awoke from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. This the psalmist is highlighting something that's critical, that if, if Israel would have taken the time to examine where they were at as a community in their walk with God, with their walk with Yahweh, they would have realized they needed to tear down these idols in the high places that are referenced in this psalm, in Psalm 78. And, and instead of trying to use God and in, in gathering the ark, they, they needed to tear down their idols. They needed to come back and, and, and rend themselves to the things that were pulling them away from God and be fully devoted to him. So there's judgment. The psalmist is highlighting the fact that judgment came upon Israel that day. But what's interesting in verses 65 through 66, it kind of gives us a picture of God's still not done. God's not, I mean, when you end with chapter 4, this is like the part of... You, any good story gets really, really bad before it gets better. And that's what we see at the end of chapter four. It's like, okay, you just, they literally just named a kid Ichabod because God's glory has departed from Israel. The ark has been captured by the Philistines. The people are in despair. They've just suffered two great defeats. Verse six, Psalm, six, or Psalm 78, 65 and 66, it says, Then the Lord awoke from sleep like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. While God wasn't going to let Israel use him, apart from them coming in repentance and and turning and and giving God their hearts and walking in obedience to him, in the same way, God had no intention of letting the Philistines use him either. And that's what we see in the coming, coming chapter is that that just like in Indiana Jones and, and that there's no way that the Nazis are going to use, again, fiction, that's fiction. That's, there's no way, but they got that idea right. There's no way that they're going to use God for some evil purpose in this way. The Philistines are not going to be able to use the ark to manipulate God and his presence any more than Israel was able to use the ark outside of a relationship with him. First Samuel 5, we see that the Philistines actually, they set up uh, the ark in, in a throne in the temple of Dagon. And, and what we see in this section is pr- probably to me one of the strangest paragraphs you'll read in scripture. I find it funny, um, but what you see is a battle takes place. So you have this statue of Dagon, this Philistine god. They set the ark up in the same room. And this is what happens. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, it says, The Philistines took the ark of God and, and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in place. So they, they leave. They come in the next morning after setting up the, the ark in, in the Dagon's temple. They come in the next morning, Dagon is prostrate before the ark, which is a, is a picture of surrender and a picture of worship. 
verse 4 says, but they arose early on the next morning. So they, they set Dagon back up next morning. This is what happened. So they, they arose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Literally, the image in my mind is not only did you see the symbol of Dagon being knocked down and and recognizing the power of the ark and the power of God represented in the ark, but you see in a very real way that idea of Dagon, both of his hands lying cut off at the threshold, his head cut off, it's like he was trying to get away. Maybe it's just me. I find that funny. But that's it's a it's a it's a scene where God is showing that He's He's greater than this false God. And and there's a power at work there that the people don't the Philistines don't understand. And the, and the chapter goes on. The Philistines are afflicted physically. Uh, it says there's mice, and uh, some commentators say that almost like it was a bubonic plague that hit them. Uh, they're described as having tumors. They're physically afflicted and to the point where in chapter 5, verse 6, it says the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. So the people of Ashdod said, get the ark out of here. So they send it to another Philistine city, the Gath. And, and the hand of the Lord is upon that city. There's tumor, affliction. The same things happen in the, in the previous city. So they send it to a third city. And the same thing happens. To the point in verse 10, it says, when, when, the, when the ark's being brought into this third city in Ekron, in verse 10, it says, they have brought uh, around to us the ark, of God, the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. So what the Philistines do is they're like, we have to get the ark out of here. They know they can't use it. They know there's a power greater than what they can control. And so in verse 11, it says, They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us or our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. So in verse, if we jump into chapter 6, we see that the people, the Philistines are instructed they need to make a guilt offering. And so they make five golden tumors and five golden mice to put with the ark and to send it as a gift. Um, I don't, I've never seen a golden tumor, um, but it's, again, it's strange. It's a strange account, but that's representing the affliction that they had. They're, They're giving this golden tribute back as a guilt offering to Israel. But the way in which they do it is like a final test for the Philistines to say, is it just a coincidence that when the ark came, everything got bad for us? Or is, or is God really judging? Is Israel's God really judging us? And so in verse, 1 Samuel 6, verses 7 through 9, it says now, the, the instruction. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And, the yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart that take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box all of its side of the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes on its way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, 
then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So this is the test. They're, they get two milk cows, not who you would typically have carry uh, or haul uh, or tow something behind it. They get these two milk cows that have never been yoked. They they put them on this the ark and these all these golden tributes on this on this cart, and. If the cows lead the ark and the guilt offering back to Israel, they'll know that the Lord's hand was responsible for the judgment upon them. If the cows fail to take the ark to Beth Shemesh, the timing of the suffering of the ark's presence was just a coincidence. Some of the commentators highlight the fact that the reason, I mean, there's two things going against the cows actually getting the ark back to Israel. They've never been yoked. They've never been yoked together and, and tied to a cart, but also the fact that these are milk cows. And did you catch the fact they were separated from their calves? They're not only not used to doing this type of work, but they're going to be terribly uncomfortable if these are milking cows and they don't have their calves to milk. And the maternal instinct is not going to be wanting to haul this to Israel, but they're going to be looking for their calves. But instead, the Philistines watch, and they see these two cows leading the ark back to Israel in a straight line. The ark returns to Israel. There's a celebration. Can you imagine that day? They went from the day of when the ark was captured, saying God has de- departed, his glory has departed. There's a celebration when he comes. They appoint Eleazar to be a new priest and caretaker for the ark. And then Samuel leads the people back to the Lord in a prayer of commitment. 1 Samuel 7, verses 3 through 4, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they serve the Lord only. This story reminds us clearly that the most important issue for, the, for our focus and for Israel's focus and, and for our focus today is not to be focused on outside threats, but to be focused on what is going on internally. Are our hearts directed to the Lord? Are we serving him only? You know, when I, there's, this is a story that you read it and think, this is like a whole different world. It's a whole different planet. Like, it's, there's so many strange cultural things happening here. But the idea of godless people you, trying to use God or God's people to accomplish some purpose politically or any other purpose in this world, that's nothing new. And as God's people, we, we need to make sure that we're walking with God, that we're walking in obedience with God, that we're taking Micah 6.8 seriously of, of, of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly before God, and, and living in relationship with him. That we're not attempting to use God to fulfill some purpose or some agenda any more than we would let the world use us to fulfill his pl- some other plan or purpose. Probably why I've been so disillusioned with politicians on every side of the aisle. Because there's a lot of people that want to use God. 
not as many people that want to walk in relationship with God and truly love him and serve him and walk according to his purpose. Samuel calls the people back to a place of repentance and, and calls them to return with all of your heart. That returning is a picture of repentance. Repentance is turning away from the direction we're going and turning back. So Israel was called back to, to be in a place of, of genuine repentance before God. Samuel calls them to put away their foreign gods or their false, false idols or gods. Really, it's putting aside when we repent and turn back to God, we need to put aside anything that competes with, God, with our devotion to God. And then we need to direct our heart to the Lord and commit ourselves to serve him only. The promise that we see in Samuel in these verses is that if they re- return, if they put away their idols, if they direct their hearts to the Lord and serve him only, the promise is that God will deliver them. And that's the promise for us. God invites us to to turn away from our sin, to give ourselves fully to God, to to set aside our idols and the things that we build up in our lives that compete for our devotion and our attention, and to direct our heart to the Lord and commit ourselves to serve him only. God will deliver us if we focus on him and his purpose for us. And, and he, he allows us, he's, he's made the way for us to do this by our putting our faith and trust in Jesus and what he did upon the cross for each of us. And we need to celebrate what Jesus has done for us and turn to him. Let God be our single devotion, our, our, the one that we trust. And let him direct our hearts to work in us so that we serve him only. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, when we read accounts like this, it seems so foreign to the world in which we know. Lord, help us to be able to see the common themes. Lord, every one of us understands the, the temptation to want to use you rather than walk in relationship with you. Or what we see in the world in which, which others would seek to use you rather than being surrendered and truly seeking to honor you. Lord, I just pray that in our hearts and our lives that we would truly return to you. That our hearts and our lives would be fully surrendered. That we would seek, Lord, to have you reign in all parts of our lives. Lord, that Jesus, that you would reign in us. Lord, may you help us in the world in which we live today, in which it's, there's so many things that can compete for our devotion and so many things that can compete for our attention. Lord, help our, our eyes and our hearts to be fixed on you. And may we continue to trust and obey, to walk with you each day, Lord, in, in humility, loving you and serving you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.